Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is William Moon, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Maryland. We'll be discussing his article, Anonymous Companies, which is forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Will, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I wonder if we could start this conversation by talking a little bit about the steps involved in forming a business entity. Maybe I'm going to start a software company or some consulting business, or I'm going to purchase a rental property and I want to have a business entity to own that rental property, or maybe I'm going to do something else with my business entity. But let's say that I form a business entity. What kind of information do I need to disclose to, say, the state secretary of state's office about myself or any co-ventures who are going to form the entity with me? Who has access to that information about us? And is it a little bit like going to a bank where there are know your customer requirements, where we might provide some sort of identification in order to open a bank account for our business entity. Yeah, so it's a great question. And the answer is that it depends on the jurisdiction you are forming your entity and to some extent, the place you are operating your business from. So it's a bit like shopping for corporate law via incorporating in different states or nations with some limited territorial exceptions. At a broad level, if you form an entity in a place like Washington, D.C. or Oregon, you have to disclose your ownership information and your co-owner's information and maybe things like business address or your home address to a state government registry. And in many states, they require some form of annual report for corporations and LLCs, which typically provide at least some basic information about who the owner is and maybe the management persons. And in places like DC, or if we zoom out of the United States, the United Kingdom, Denmark, they require registries to be accessible to the general public and are searchable. So probably the poster child for maximum public disclosure um, is the United Kingdom, where everything is freely searchable and they even have a, it's even in a machine readable format. Then there's the other side of the spectrum. If you form your LLC in a jurisdiction with laxer disclosure laws like Wyoming or Delaware, you may not need to disclose any information about yourself or your entity, either because you can just choose to disclose your registered agent's name and address to the registry or by deploying more elaborate and potentially legally questionable methods, which include things like owning an LLC through another business entity that's formed in another jurisdiction. So there's a lot of permutations. And I guess with regards to your identification question, in the United States, you do not need identification to form an LLC. You just go to the Secretary of State's website, you self-disclose. It's actually easier than to form an LLC than getting a driver's license or even a library card, as they say it. And it's true for anonymous companies as our regular company. So you can accomplish this within 30 minutes. At least this was true before the Corporate Transparency Act, which will be fully implemented I think next year. I'd like to come back to the Corporate Transparency Act in a moment, but as we stand now, before it's been implemented, it does sound like it's possible to create a business entity and be fairly anonymous about your ownership of that business entity. And that has been a practice that's gotten a lot of criticism in the press and Congress and international tax and law enforcement circles and, and so on. 
what's the origin of that criticism or the concern about anonymity of business ownership? You are absolutely correct. And to be honest, that's initially how I got drawn to the project. So in the aftermath of the Panama Papers, the general public through investigative journalism was really handed a treasure trove of information about anonymous shell companies, which are typically front companies with no assets, no businesses that tend to be formed in these very same jurisdictions like Delaware, Cyprus, Wyoming. And those entities are said to facilitate activities ranging from tax evasion, drug trafficking, money laundering, and the parade of horribles. So there's a lot of sensational stories and anecdotes about this. Many are true. A famously former Trump campaign manager, Paul Manafort, laundered about $18 million through anonymous shell companies formed in all over the world. Several years ago, New York Times did a story on James Simons, this billionaire head fund manager who set up a trust in Bermuda, who helped him defer his taxes. You might be familiar with the North Korean dictator who uses shell companies to launder money for his nuclear program and evade trade sanctions. And some of these activities are not technically illegal. But when it comes to the wealthy and the powerful dodging tax through tax avoidance and secrecy, that doesn't sit well with most people, and rightfully so. And if you read the text of the Corporate Transparency Act, different iterations going back at least a decade, the first several paragraphs, it really lays out the reasons for that law. And it's that 2 million entities are being formed in the United States every year. And a lot of these bad people are using it. And we need some sort of um, disclosure laws. And in some respects, the lack of global coordination contributes to this problem. And if we look at it cynically, perhaps these small offshore jurisdictions and small states like Delaware and Wyoming are commercializing their sovereignty that might be harming the society. So my paper is not an attempt to diminish this real problem that people are flagging attention to, but more so to identify that there's another part of the story that's not being fully investigated and told. Let's talk about that side of the story that isn't being told, the flip side of maybe the parade of horribles. You locate an underlying privacy interest of the people, the owners behind business entities as one potential justification for continued respect or continued availability for anonymous companies. Can you talk about that privacy interest? How can business entities serve individual privacy interests? And are those interests legitimate? Absolutely. I've mentioned that the project really started with my inclination to critique the practice. But as I really delved further into the project, I started to realize that there are thousands of legitimate business ventures whose owners opt for anonymity for various reasons that's not related to illegal activities and that there might not just be a personal benefit, but there might be a socially benefit component in this form and in that they might encourage productive business enterprise. And I think that's really my central point of the paper. So if we think about standard corporate law, scholarship and doctrine on the core functional features of business entities, the whole idea of asset partitioning and the doctrine of limited liability that we teach to students are really ideas that's built around risk allocation. And that risk allocation is conceptualized really purely in terms of capital. Limited liability is about the amount of capital risk that ought to be borne by equity owners. Once you form a corporation or LLC, as I tell in my business associations class, if I go out onto the streets and sell crab cakes and somebody dies from eating my crab cakes, all of my personal assets are potentially up for grab by that 
tort victim, but not if I form an LLC. And we all know that limited liability comes at a pretty hefty price tag and side effects of excessive risk-taking and moral hazard problems. But it's also an important doctrine that really helps entrepreneur overcome risk aversion. And it in turn generates a range of societal benefits from innovation to tax revenues to all the wonderful things that enterprises can generate. And this is all good and well, but in reality, my paper points out that protecting the privacy interests of entrepreneurs can also powerfully drive the propensity for entrepreneurial risk-taking. And I call that concept a concept of identity shielding. And it's just a simple idea that just like how limited capital liability can encourage entrepreneurial risk-taking, what we can conceptualize as limited reputational liability can also do the same, particularly for certain types of ventures. In the paper, I use several examples to elaborate on this concept of identity shielding. One is that it really helps fund and incubate morally contestable enterprises. A section of the paper is devoted to recounting the story of how the first abortion drug in the United States came to be. And as it turns out, anonymous companies that were formed in the Cayman Islands were instrumental to pool the $50 million or so needed to conduct the clinical trials for regulatory approval. And anonymity was really essential because no pharmaceutical company at the time was willing to touch the drug because of the fear of backlash by anti-abortion activists. So this company literally had everything from the company's telephone number to the exact headquarter address was anonymous. The company only said it was housed somewhere in midtown Manhattan. And by morally contestable enterprises, I'm really not just talking about abortion. Many people fear being associated with particular ventures because it might impact their reputation or in some cases, personal safety. And there's, I think, a real link between innovation and identity shielding because I think innovation requires a certain amount of critical thinking that anonymity helps pull together and incubate. And the second bucket of entrepreneurs that I sort of explore in the paper is people that desire anonymity because of their personal circumstances, as is the case for survivors of intimate partner violence victims. So many IPV survivors can't hold down full-time employment because the fear of being tracked and having your home address disclosed via state registry when there's a stalker out there is probably not a good idea. Or entrepreneurs who turn to anonymous companies because of certain immutable traits like race and gender that are punished by the market. So in the paper, I highlight the story of Jay Jones, who is a host of this podcast on iHeartRadio called Black Entrepreneur Blueprint, who literally tells his listeners to incorporate in a state like Delaware where members of LLCs can stay anonymous. And if you just listen to his story, it's not surprising why he, as a self-proclaimed sort of Black guy with bald head, chooses to use an anonymous structure because one of his business is actually selling high-end beauty products, hair products to white women. And his identity is actually a competitive disadvantage, regardless of the quality of the products. And so just to wrap up, I think more broadly, what should be alarming, I think, is that identity shielding appears to be the default historically, at least in the United States. So part of this is that we just don't know what we'll be losing when we go all the way to the extreme of banning identity shielding for legitimate enterprises in the name of going after the bad guys. It sounds like there's a tension between a few different interests here. There's the social interest in avoiding things like 
money laundering or drug trafficking or terrorist financing, et cetera. There's also the social interest in encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship. And then there are the personal interest here as well, which I think lean probably more strongly toward the anonymity side. I wonder if we could talk about how we might be able to balance those interests. Do you offer any policy recommendations or do you have some thoughts on that front to balance the things that society doesn't want and the things that it does want and the personal privacy interest, individual business owners and entrepreneurs. We have this new Corporate Transparency Act that you mentioned at the top of the show. Is that going to be the solution or are there some potential problems that you see brewing in its implementation? Yes, it's a really great question. And I acknowledge in the paper that this is a difficult question, in part because there's not a lot of evidence about both the efficacy of disclosure laws and the extent to which privacy actually matters for enterprise. And also because it really more broadly goes to the heart of thinking about what kind of society we want to live in. So I don't think any given jurisdiction's laws are suboptimal or wrong. It's just different priorities and trade-offs. But I think one of the guiding principles that might be helpful is to avoid extreme laws on both ends and have a bit of humility when it comes to laws serving their intended purpose. That there's always going to be a world where we have some parade of horribles financial crimes, we're going to have tax evaders and drug traffickers. And there's always going to be loopholes, even in the most majestically and carefully drafted disclosure laws. And on the flip side, I'm not arguing that privacy is an essential feature of the corporate form or business entities. So that is, even if without privacy, you'll see entrepreneurship, just like how we will have entrepreneurship without limited liability. And of course, all of us in corporate law know that limited liability itself is not without exception, right? There's this whole veil-piercing jurisprudence for those who abuse the corporate form. And I think that's a middle ground that we might seriously consider. In my view, I think for many jurisdictions, what I call in the paper as semi-disclosure laws might be a model to strive towards. So perhaps making information available to government agencies, but not necessarily to the general public might be one method. The Corporate Transparency Act in some respects accomplishes this, although details are really being ironed out. So we'll see what the Treasury Department does with it. But my real concern is with the sort of the the UK approach of full throttle mandatory public disclosure regimes. I think while well-intentioned, I think the legislation's targeting shell companies might be a little bit too overbroad in targeting legal ventures without evidence that the disclosures actually help deter crime. Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview or the paper? And are there any open questions you hope to maybe confront in the future? Yeah, so I think we need more research. So traditionally, there's a lot of really great work actually done at the intersection of corporations and privacy. But that literature predominantly is concerned with studies, questions about whether corporations are legal persons and whether they ought to enjoy the right to privacy as a matter of United States constitutional law. And really great work is done here, like Adam Winkler, Elizabeth Pullman, Eric Ortz, Amy Sepinwall, Vince Bacola, all of those people have done really great work there. But I think less attention has been paid to the impact of privacy and anonymity when it comes to entrepreneurial risk-taking. There's a vast literature on the link between limited liability and enterprise lots of disagreements. But I think we need just more studies investigating and critiquing that link between privacy and enterprise, both from a historical angle and empirical angle, interdisciplinary work. And I think more broadly, I think 
there's a lot of room to think about corporations and other business entities, not just as transactional cost reducing devices, as it's often traditionally conceptualized, but really descriptively appreciating the full spectrum of roles played by LLCs and other business entities today. And thankfully, lots of others are writing on this now. Chris Bradley has recently written on artworks as business entities and how LLCs can be deployed to evade existing legal restrictions. But there's even a lot more work to be done there and to really fully examine that link between these new roles served by entities and their consequence for society, whether it's for the good or the bad. So I think that's just the academic side and obviously a lot of policy questions that might stem from that academic discussion. Our guest has been William Moon, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Maryland. We've discussed his article, Anonymous Companies, which is forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Will, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That was so fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.